Greetings and a warm welcome to all of you to Intersections, where our aspiration is to help us dissolve boundaries, uh, all kinds of boundaries, functional, disciplinary, role-based, uh, just the mindsets we have sometimes about how this part of my life is very different from this part of my life or this part of the world is very different from this part of the world, so that we can explore our full potential, both as individuals as well as as humanity. Today, I have with us someone who will, you know, through her story, exemplify the power of dissolving that boundary between that pure version of you that seeks to be very grounded in a certain set of values, in a certain you know, sense of wanting to be good, do good you know, in the world. And that part of us that wants to play by the rules and win in this messy dog-eat-dog kind of world that we live in. How do we dissolve that boundary and make sure that in fact, outer success is ours, but that it is coming from a deeply grounded place within. It is gonna be my great pleasure to have us in our midst, Magda Verzika. Magda is a businesswoman. She's a self-made billionaire and also a change maker. Let me tell you just a couple of things about Magda and then I will invite her onto our program. Magda was born in Poland and her family escaped the country during the collapse of the communist regime and then immigrated to South Africa. She has, in South Africa, risen then from very humble beginnings to the highest echelons of African business and worked as a reformer, both in business and more broadly in society. She's over 20 years of experience in the asset management business in South Africa and has published also widely in the field. So she is a domain expert in that industry as well. She's founded Signia. Signia has been a um, big success story in the financial institution, fintech, you know, financial technology space in South Africa, really increasing its uh, share of managed capital and becoming the second largest multi-management company in South Africa. She's also uh, been advising a number of storied institutions, including the Actuarial Society of South Africa and the Africa Advisory Board at Harvard University. Uh, Forbes called her the 50 most powerful women in Africa. She is the, the richest uh, woman in, in Africa. And, uh, and those, in many regards, are actually small compared to so many aspects of her strength that are not really statistically measurable but they are so deep and profound to who she is. On that note, uh, let me also highlight her work in the anti-corruption kind of space. She's been an active you know, speaker against exploitation, bribery, and fraud, or as she likes to call it, I want to be on the right side of the equation. On that note, let me invite into our midst, Magda. So Magda, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Hi, everyone. Magda, I got to know you because you came to Colombia on an invite from one of our leadership centers to give a talk. And I was just blown away. I was just blown away. We all have so much to do. And I was very intrigued just by our profile. And I said, I know this is a little early in the day and I've got other stuff, but I, I want to be there because there's something really intriguing about what I see and sense in you. And I came there and I'm so grateful because it has led to a series of dialogues. It has led to you coming to my class. And it is leading now to this moment as well. So I'm, I'm just feeling a great sense of joy and fulfillment in having taken that step to just discover and know about uh, your journey. And I want to propose that maybe we start at the very beginning of that sort of journey, your roots. Can you tell us a little bit about memories you have about you know, just those very early years? Um, absolutely. Look, I mean, I grew up, I was born in Poland in a town which really its only fame, Gliwice, was that that's the town where Germany attacked Poland um, during World War II. Um, and I grew up in a communist Poland. So, you know, it's a regime where everyone had very little, but everyone had the same. 
So, you know, you lived in the same 60 square meter apartments, typically multi-generational because, you know, there wasn't enough um, accommodation. Remember, Poland was destroyed after World War II, so everything had to be rebuilt from scratch. It was rebuilt with the help and control of Soviet, Soviet Union, hence the communism. And, you know, but, but living in a communist state meant that you had a couple of things. You had free education of very, very high quality. You had free healthcare and you had guaranteed employment. And because everyone had the same, you never knew what you didn't have. And because communication from the West was so limited, you never realized that, um, that there was a different way of living than the way we were living. But as every regime which pretends to offer its population absolutely everything, and you know communism is you know on the on the far left of socialism, these regimes typically sustain themselves through loans and eventually a collapse. And that's really what happened to, to communism. It ran out of money. But before it ran out of money, it ran out of food. So literally overnight, food supplies disappeared from stores and about 3 million people living in Eastern Europe decided to escape to the West. And, you know, we were part of that escape. So overnight, uh, together with my brother, sister, grandmother, uh, we crossed the border, landed up in a refugee camp in Austria. And then from there, my parents, a medical doctor, signed contracts with South African army and their medical services. And we landed up in South Africa, studied in South Africa, became an actuary, and then joined the asset management industry via a startup. Ended up setting up seven different asset management uh, companies in the process. And I think the, the part of the roots that uh, you know, you're referring to is that Poland is a troubled country in many ways and remains so today, if you look at the politics. But um, one thing that defines Poland over the past, say, 100 years or so, is it's a very deeply rooted anti-Semitism. And um, so, so people who do live in Poland hide the fact that they're Jewish. Just to give you some statistics, before World War II, there were three and a half million Jews living in Poland. After the war, 350,000 survived. Given a couple of pogroms that happened after World War II, which are not well publicized or well known, where Jews were again expelled out of Poland, only 50,000 remained. And then um, over the years, even those People emigrated, and today there are 7,500 Jews living openly in Poland. So being Jewish was nothing that anyone would broadcast. So when I was 13 and we arrived in South Africa, my father called us together and said to us, you know, he's got this great family secret he needs to reveal. And it obviously was quite a thing for him to say, but he basically told us that he was Jewish, which made us half Jewish. Um, and I can't say that that kind of resonated with anything because, you know, I've never really been exposed to, to the concept of uh, Judaism before. But when I got to university, I started researching, digging into my family history, uh, discovered that my entire family died in the Holocaust in concentration camps, which was quite a thing. And it explained quite a lot of things in my background. For instance, the fact that we had no family. <laughs> so I never questioned the fact that apart from the fact that my grandparents, who obviously were part of the 350,000 people that survived, 
there was nobody else. There were no aunts or uncles or cousins. And it's only later on in life that you reflect back and you go, okay, I now understand some of the issues that clearly I didn't understand as a child. Very quick, whatever, bubble. Yeah. <laughs> my history. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. It gives me goosebumps every time I hear it because uh, there is, on the one hand, so much um, challenge and adversity. I mean, in your just one story is encapsulated some of the struggles so many groups of people have faced in the course of uh, their, their history, immigration, you know, the fall of a certain world order, and then this uh, Jewish Holocaust experience that your family had to go through. It's, um, on the one hand, a very heavy-hearted you know, story, but on the other hand, I just also see an incredible capacity to rebound and to rebuild in your story, uh, which I'm sure started as much with your grandparents and then your parents as it ultimately then got inherited by you. And and that's heroic and that's beautiful. And when I see everything that is going on in the world today and how people are getting shaken up and beaten up by the um, you know manner in which the pandemic is upending their lives, I mean, let's put it in perspective, guys. Let's put it in perspective. You know, just, just see that in the context of what you've just shared, Magda, but all the things that you had to go through. Well, let me just add a couple of data points and not necessarily kind of that, that uh, well, they are related, but when we landed up in South Africa, we knew nothing about South Africa, but we arrived there to the full blast of the apartheid regime. So just as we thought we escaped communism, we ended up in apartheid and then had to live through the years of basically, well, an attempt at equalizing uh, the society, which was easy to do um, in terms of political transfer of power, obviously the economic transfer of wealth has not happened and South Africa continues to be one of those countries where the inequality is the highest um, and the vulnerable are all around you and poverty is all around you. I also lived through that transition, yet another transition of power, yet another unsustainable regime, which eventually ran out of money. It's not as if, you know, the National Party in South Africa would govern and, and implemented apartheid suddenly came to a realization that ethically this is, or morally, this is not correct. They basically ran out of money. The West placed them under uh, sanctions and they ran out of money. But if you actually th think that regimes ended or that this rise of fascism is not there. I'll quote another data point to you, and it comes from last night. So I arrived back from New York in, in London yesterday, so I was quite jet-lagged, switched on the news uh, to see Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of UK, talk at the party conference. And what did he say? What he said was that, um, because obviously, you know, UK is suddenly um, suffering from the shortage of low-paid workers. So we're talking waiters and cleaners and truck drivers. And so if you follow the news, you will see that shortages of this fuel. Is Brexit, uh, Brexit. Right? Well, this is what he said about Brexit. He said, we all must suffer because we all voted in 2016 to get rid of immigrants from the UK and we don't want them back. Now, immigrants in the UK mostly consisted of Polish people. There were half a million Polish people pre-Brexit who lived and worked in the UK, occupying all those positions. They're gone. Mm -hmm. So if you actually think that, that suddenly xenophobia isn't there in developed markets, all you have to do is, you probably can find it on YouTube, listen to Boris Johnson last night, and tell me how a leader, one of the leaders of the free world has a platform and the freedom to say we got rid of immigrants and we don't want them back. 
Yeah. Uh, so you immigrate under very difficult conditions to um, South Africa. South Africa itself is in a state of great ferment. You watch the collapse of another regime in South Africa, the apartheid regime. In the meanwhile, you're getting educated. You're starting down the path of professional life. And I know that you've talked about how many different asset management companies you know you were a part of. But let's maybe start that piece at the at the very kind of inception point. So you graduate from your studies, and then what's like what's that first job that you got? Well, the first job was actually not of my choosing. So because, you know, we arrived in Sada Ipraka with three suitcases and my parents literally had $500 with them. And when I finished high school, which was fortunately for free public schooling, there wasn't money for me to go to university. So I had to find a degree where I could get a bursary. And life insurance companies were offering full bursaries for something called actuarial science, which I had no idea what the subject is. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not quite sure what it is today. But um, I had good enough marks to, to get a bursary, fully paid for bursary. So everything was paid for, including food. Uh, but in exchange, when I uh, finished my studies, I had to go and work for the insurance company that paid for my university. So my first job was working literally in the engine room of a life insurance company developing a savings products and life insurance products. But, you know, I very quickly looked to my left, looked to my right. I realized that the people around me were a hell of a lot brighter than I was, mathematically and otherwise. And also that the work was damn boring. And so I went on a hunt for something that would look more interesting. And I discovered the investment division of, of Southern Life and managed to wangle my way into a transfer into the investment division. And then, you know, from there... Again, it was uh, the interesting thing about that in investment division was that it was a failure of an asset management company. And they were looking, and we're talking about 1993, 1994, they were looking at something different that they could do. And they stumbled across this concept of passive asset management, uh, which even then was beginnings of, of passive asset management in the U.S., so Vanguard was still very small and irrelevant. But they looked around and I was the only person with any kind of a mathematical statistical degree. And so the, the management decided to send me to the US to learn about passive asset management and then to come back and start managing a passive fund. So at the right page of, I think, 23 or 24, I was managing my first product in South Africa, which was the first passive fund in South Africa, which was a very good education. But again, I very quickly, I kind of do believe that in your 20s, you need to experiment and learn as much as you can. You should not be focusing. I mean, I was just preaching to my son, who is at Columbia, doing his master's. So literally a week ago, I was saying to him that... Um, you know, your 20s are about experimentation and learning. Earning money should not be, or maximizing your income should not be your focus in your 20s. That comes later. Your 20s are your building block. So true to that mantra, I, you know, very quickly moved on to another company. I kind of managed to, well, by coincidence, was seated next to the CEO of that company, and I really wanted to work for that company. So at the end of that dinner, I managed to convince him that it was his idea to offer me a job. So he did. He didn't exactly know what to do with me. So he gave me my first you know, entrepreneurial project. And that was, it was a consulting company, consulting to very large uh, retirement funds. 
uh, private retirement funds on investment strategies. And because I was such an expert, he said to me, you know, we don't currently consult on investments. They were consulting on the design of kind of employee benefit schemes. So, you know, kind of 401k plans, uh, but not on the actual investment strategies. So he said to me, set up that division, which I then did. And I started marketing to clients and actually built it into something meaningful within kind of year and a half. And then, um, you know, while I was doing that, I was approached by a true asset management startup. It was kind of six guys and a dog who have walked out of a larger asset management company. They set up a business and they knew how to manage money. They didn't know how to run a business. I have no idea why they thought I knew how to run a business, but they approached me and they said, come join us. We'll manage the money. You do everything else. And, you know, and I was always up for a challenge. So I agreed. There was only kind of one catch. And that was that I had to cut my salary to a third of what I was earning previously in exchange for a promise of a profit share if the business was successful. Uh, but I decided to take the risk. That was really the, the start of my journey because I did end up doing absolutely everything else from finance to legal to marketing, business development. I did the slides. I dealt with regulators. I did all the client servicing. But the education was invaluable. Money was negligible, but the education was, was more than worthwhile. Wonderful. Let's, let's maybe take pause there for a moment because you've just shared so much and uh, we'll keep the story going from there in just a minute. But I want to tease out a few different, I think, lessons that all of us can take. You mentioned one, the power of experimentation, especially in your 20s, to discover through the process of doing things and uh, then reflecting on sort of what you're resonating with. I'm, I'm hearing you say, I also heard you talk about how you looked left, looked right and felt like these people were smarter than me in this domain. But that didn't uh, discourage you. It didn't make you feel like, oh, Ah, you know, I'm not going to be as successful. It made you just feel like I need to spread my wings and look elsewhere and see the bigger picture than what they're able to see here. So that's a really powerful lesson, I think, unto itself. I also heard you talk about how you were then sent to the US because you had some mathem math mathematical acumen, which was going to be helpful for setting up that passive investing kind of piece. And so this actuarial thing that you did, because it was where the scholarship opportunity came from and all of that suddenly became actually a good thing for you to have. You'd kind of like walked away from it when you'd actually moved away from that actuarial kind of community. But on the other hand, it was good to have that as a strength in you. I sometimes think about life that way, Magda. I think that the more we over the course of our lives get more clarified about our purpose, especially if our heart is pure and we are deeply committed to going on some kind of like hero's journey, some kind of positive journey in our life, that you just never know when the dots connect when you look backward, as Steve Jobs would have said, that you suddenly realize, I thought that was a dead end, or I thought that was like, you know, a useless part of my life experience based on where I am today. But now I'm finding that it was that skill or that experience or that individual I met there, which is actually really helping me in this present moment. So as if like life is more intelligent than we are about, you know, putting certain things of the jigsaw puzzle, and it's only much later we see the whole big picture. I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of that in your story, which is, which is really beautiful. I'm seeing you also talk about the confidence you had in a leader, in a particular individual. And you said, I want to work for him. You know, I heard you say that. So there's some lesson yeah. there about so betting on people, not just betting on like, I want to work on this kind of problem or that kind of industry. I had a situation like that in my own case as well, where I bet on somebody and I realized the power of just working with the right kinds of people. But I also heard you talk about people betting on you 
and the power of having them put more confidence in you and more responsibility in you than maybe your resume might have justified and how you rose to that occasion. So, I mean, anyways, it's just a very inspiring story. Well, I think, you know, there, there are a couple of things. One is, you know, as much as actuarial science, and it's a broader, incidentally broader, for those of you that have been exposed to, to UK-based actuarial science, it's slightly different to actuarial science in the US. It's, it's a broader subject. But um, when I qualified as an actuary, I think I was the second or third woman to be to qualify. And um, that gave me incredible amount of credibility when I was in my 20s. So, you know, I often do uh, kind of talks to actuarial students. I often get asked, is it worthwhile? You know, it's such a boring course to study at university. And I basically say to people, look, it's invaluable because what you do at university is your golden key to the future. And it's not necessarily what you will end up doing. What you should end up doing is something that you love and you're passionate about. But the education that you you that gets you there is really the key to that at all. And as much as um, I always advocate and I've told my sons they must study what they must study. I have made sure that part of the degrees they throw in a course on economics, a course on finance, a course on uh, politics, so that they understand the broader world. I've also gotten um, a commitment from them that they give me a year of their life in their 20s to do an MBA uh, so that they can manage their business affairs. And incidentally, one is studying computer science and the other one is hoping to be an actor but doing his PPE degree. But still, I want to make sure that they have the business skills to you know, run their life um, appropriately. And so to me, that actuarial science degree was really it. And no, I wasn't the brightest person in my year. Or It's a course that does attract mathematical, statistical geniuses. But why should that be a hindrance in life? Basically, as I said, you can only be successful. That's my firm belief, personal one that you can only be successful if, um, you know, your work is your hobby and if you are passionate about what you do uh, and you love what you do, because why the hell would you go to work for eight hours or nine hours a day and be unhappy? You should get up in the morning and, um, you know, can't wait to, to get to work and, and start your day, not kind of live for your weekends, um, which so many people do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that thought. You know, I remember as I was growing up, I'd, I'd come across this like you know, basic notion that you, you know, work hard, you strive to excel, you achieve some level of success, and then at some point you retire, and then you supposedly play golf and look back and just feel a sense of pride about what it is that you've done. <laughs> you know, and then, uh, Magda, I, I went to Florence and um, I came back really inspired. So I wanted to read more about uh, Michelangelo and the Renaissance period. And so I read this beautiful book. I don't know if you've come across so it is called The Agony and the Ecstasy. It's by a biographer called Irving Stone. And he wrote it almost like a novel on Michelangelo, but with all that research about his life to making it as real as possible. But one thing I discovered there is that this man, he outlived like so many popes, you know, during his, his time. And he ended up living a really rich and long life. I think he was like 89 or so when he passed away, if I recall. And he never stopped working. He never stopped working because his work was for him, his life. It was his joy. It was his passion. And it just completely resonated with me. Completely. And then I realized, oh my God, this is the ideal life for me. <laughs> it's not that one. It's this one. And I can 
I can see how you're exemplifying that so so beautifully. That's so powerful. I love the prescription, the guidance you're seeking to give your two sons as well that um, get exposed to multiple things right now and broaden your perspectives. I've been wanting to kind of convince my daughter at some point to consider an MBA as well, because I do think that among all the graduate you know, disciplines, um, a business degree is quite multifaceted, all the different fields you encounter there. She's passionate about law, so she wants to go to law school. But maybe I'll invite her to spend some time with you <laughs> and you can convince her. No, absolutely. Um, you need life skills. That's yeah. the basic message. Yeah. So Magda, I mean, who has been like the most influential source for you in helping you stay grounded and get guidance beyond the form- formal curriculum or whatever training and education you've received? Where has your guidance come from? Has it been a book? Has it been some individuals? Has it been, yeah, just, I mean, like role model, who would you say has been your greatest guy? <laughs> Okay, that's that's kind of a terrible question to ask me because um, being a woman in financial services industry, and I'm, I'm quite sure everyone will re- relate because the world hasn't changed really. You don't have a lot of role models. You don't have, you know, there's no backing for women in financial services. So it's not as if there is, when I started my own business eventually in Signia, it's not as if there were venture capitalists giving me money or being willing to back me and my ideas. There are also no networks, female networks in the financial services industry. So men have networks, you know, they bond over golf, over sport, over drinks. Women don't do any of that. Part of the reason is that most women realize that there are a limited number of slots for women in the executive tier of a company, of a financial services company, or a legal company for that matter, or an auditing company, private equity group, VC funds, it's it's all the same. And consequently, don't uh, mentor other women, quite the, the opposite. So to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, in terms of my career, I have n- never had a mentor. I have never looked up to anyone. I have always done what I felt was right. And, and it's not that I made correct decisions all the time, but I basically decided long ago I'm, that, you know, I will be guided by my own judgment. So no books, no mentors, no people I've looked up to I've very early on in my career. Now I'll tell you why I haven't looked up to people. Very early on um, in my career, in, in that first startup, the actual true owner of that business, as, as I realized, a profit share is different to, to ownership of shares. So... Yeah, I didn't own any shares in that business. So so the owner of that business who has made a few billion, I was sitting next to on the plane next to him. And he said to me something very wise, which has stayed with me for the rest of my life. I mean, I was whatever, 25, 26. And he said to me, Magda, irrespective of um, how rich you are in life, there will always be someone who is wealthier than you. So, you know, the, if you set yourself a benchmark of wealth as an example, fame as an example, power as an example, you need to realize that there will always be someone who has more money, who has uh, more power, who is more successful than what you are. And so if you start looking to that as validation of who you are, you are going to fail. It's a very sad life to look for validation outside of yourself. So I never have. I've always said, you know, I will self-validate. I need to be happy with who I am. As a person, I kind of do believe that, you know, life consists of these scales. There are things you've done right in your life and things you've done wrong. But when you look at yourself in the mirror, 
because you know no one is without faults for goodness sake everyone loses their temper everyone does things they regret but when you look at yourself in the mirror every morning i firmly believe that when you look at those scales the number of things you've done right so you might this is a mirror image uh, should outweigh the number of things that uh, you've done wrong and that's the way i live my life i look at myself in the mirror every day and i say okay where am i in the balance of life and provided that, that scale is tipped towards having done the right things things i'm happy with things that contribute then i'm i'm satisfied and self validated i don't need external validation can you talk about sort of like moving away from just the success you were striving for to put yourself in a solid place in life to succeed as a businesswoman to a larger role that you want to play in the world how did that get sparked and what were some of the early triggers yeah okay let me let me give you a number of of things so one is um you know i do believe in um giving people a chance so uh, unusually for a financial services company i employ who people who have been rehabilitated but who have served in jail uh which is unusual uh, as you can imagine but that that really isn't the story you know south africa after emerging out of the apartheid regime african national congress took over lack many of these political movements they don't easily make a transition from being a political movement to a a political party and african national congress has been hugely unsuccessful in making that transition and subsequently running south africa nelson mandela notwithstanding so south africa is economically in a much worse space now than it has ever been before um many reasons for it but in the last 10 years in particular up until 2 years ago for 10 years south africa had a very very corrupt president called jacob zuma and he happened to collude with three brothers called gupta brothers they were actually associated with crime families in india they emigrated or came to south africa i think the whole thing was staged uh, zuma assumed powers through fairly illegitimate wheelings and dealings with the anc became president of the country and started looting the country but before you judge emerging markets let me just um, explain how the looting took place so the looting uh, took place via bribery via huge government contracts and the parties who paid the bribes for securing those contracts were just before you look at emerging markets where mckinsey bain kpmg deloitte sap so it's various international multinational companies that have come into an emerging market and plundered it um despite the poverty around them despite what they saw and clearly saw they plundered an emerging market with collaboration of president zuma Now I had a unique position um in that I built up my own company I wasn't beholden to anyone no one funded me I as much as I IPO'd the company in 2015 I own vast majority of the shares so I had this complete freedom you know I wasn't an employee so I wasn't a CEO employee so I had the complete freedom to speak out and so I started speaking out against the corruption and the looting and everything that was happening around us which made me kind of a very lone voice i expected that business south africa would do the same because we were seeing exactly the same thing you know the infrastructure collapse the economic collapse of the country the increasing unemployment increasing poverty but no you know again i looked left i looked right and i was alone on that stage so that was 
part of the journey. And then um, in 2017, when things were really, really bad and he heading even worse direction, because Zuma was up for re-election in December 2017, and this was April, May 2017, I was approached by a whistleblower. And the whistleblower came into a possession of a whole horde of information, basically emails, a trove of emails that came from the compound in which the Gupta brothers lived. And it was, you know, 500,000 emails, which documented everything that they did with Zuma, with various presidents, with KPMG, with McKinsey. Uh, so literally, it was a record of five years of corruption in South Africa. And so, you know, I paid for the whistleblower, for protection of the whistleblower, which is what he wanted. I came into possession of this drive, which made it a little bit of a dangerous possession to, to have. Obviously, I had legal advice at the time. Um, I was advised that for protection of everyone, I had to democratize the data. I traveled to London. I met with the lawyers who uh, published the Panama Papers. They weren't interested. They said it's too much work. I tried WikiLeaks um, just to discover that it's a very unstable platform. I literally got to the point where I stood outside of the Ecuadorian embassy in London. I thought I'll take this drive and actually throw it through the window at Julian Assange. But eventually I landed up locking myself in a hotel room in London for seven days, uh, reading every single email, 500,000 of them, classifying it into storylines according to who was corrupt and where. I then uh, made flash drives of, of the most relevant emails and uh, distributed them to everyone in South Africa in any position of power. Ministers, heads of trade unions, heads of political parties, literally everybody. And, you know, it took two weeks before all of that hit the press. And suddenly South Africa became aware of just how bad the corruption has been. So before that, there were whispers, there always whispers, but suddenly there, were, there was proof as opposed to whispers. So that's how my kind of activist journey started. Since then, I've start, you know, I, I try to stay completely apolitical. Uh, so what I've done is I've tackled real corruption, people stealing money from the state, from pension funds. Uh, but I have tried to stay, you know, very apolitical in all of this. But that's where, where I am now. But having said that, you know, I've always believed that and, and hence, not a big fan of the woke movement. And I'll tell you why. I don't believe in looking at the past. I believe that you should pour your energy into the future and making a positive change in the future. You can't change the past. I mean, you can tear down statues, you can do... But if you just take that emotional energy and pour it into the future and making the world a better space, isn't that a better way of spending your time than wasting it on history? Learn from history, absolutely. Do not ignore history. But oh my goodness, really? This is where we're going to be? We've got climate change. We've got poverty. We've got unemployment. We've got a pandemic. We are going to be spending our time on, on pulling down statues. Who cares? So in terms of South Africa, you know, I've decided that enough of focusing on the negatives and fighting corruption. So my next chapter is, you know, South Africa has no venture capital industry whatsoever. There isn't a single venture capital fund in South Africa. And yet we're sitting with over 50% unemployment. So I am starting, you know, in January, so it's in process, uh, of launching a venture capital fund. I already have commitments, not insignificant commitments from institutional investors. It's going to be the largest if venture capital fund in South Africa. And I'm going to focus on job creation in South Africa. 
in funding startups, in funding entrepreneurs, in retaining those skills in the country because, you know, so many people are emigrating because of lack of opportunities. So I want to focus on creating those opportunities. You know, venture capital industry has never been, particularly at startup stages, you know, it's not a hugely profitable endeavor. When you look at the fees that you generate relative to asset management or relative to private equity, do your research on venture capital, by the way, and you will discover that it's it's not what it seems. Uh, but in terms of South Africa, I want to now focus on making a positive contribution towards positivity as opposed to constantly fighting crooks who fight back. And so that's really where I am at the moment. Wow, that's uh, very powerful. Very powerful, Magda. Let me, let me ask you, in this quest to uh, shake up a little bit the complacency and uh, complicity of a system that um, has become so corrupt and uh, waking up everyone from the multinationals to the local politics to help clean up some of this. You know, I'm sure you've encountered all kinds of barriers, hurdles, resistance and risks. And uh, I'm curious, you know, do you regret doing any of this based on like what ramifications it imposed on you at all? I mean, I, do you have like some some regrets at least? I mean, is there like if for somebody who was drawn to doing similar things and having the courage to do it, which you clearly just have very naturally, is there any caution that you want to give them about what cost this comes at? Look, I mean, so, so you know, the cost obviously has been personal safety in South Africa. You know, when, when I did what I did, I mean, it's naive. You know, I was followed by state security. You know, my phones were tapped. My kids were followed. I have bodyguards to this day in South Africa. My kids had bodyguards until um, they moved to study in the US. So certainly, you know, what, what I did and continue to do and the speaking out didn't come without its dangers. And, and possibly that continues. Um, I've eventually been persuaded to write a book and in a moment of madness I agreed and it's going to be published next year and again if there are any public appearances, if there are any book signings I will have major security team around me. So, so there are costs but when you present it with a decision like I was it's not that a lot of people get presented with extreme decisions that was kind of a you know, act of reason you have a choice. I mean, you can decide to do the right thing or the wrong thing. So I could have helped the whistleblower or not helped the whistleblower. When I decided to help the whistleblower, and I have helped many since, by the way, that was the decision I made. I didn't quite know what was on the drive or not in a huge amount of detail until, you know, I, I looked at all the emails. So the real decision that I made right at the beginning was to help someone who was in fear for their life. That was a fundamental decision. Did I, at that point, consider all the consequences that will stem from it? You know, I, I knew vaguely what was on the drive. And I knew that publishing the data will have, or what was on the drive, would have political consequences, legal consequences, um, that it can change the narrative in the country significantly. So, so it wasn't just about saving human life or helping someone. But I firmly believe that given the, seeing the poverty around me and seeing what was happening in South Africa, the right decision was to take control. And do something about it. And, and that really was the true decision. You know, did I then right at that point in time consider the consequences? Clearly not. Uh, would I have changed anything? No. Even if I had, you know, foreseen all the, all the things that were going to happen? Absolutely not. I would have done exactly um, what I have done. Look, I'm 
never regret the decisions I make. I acknowledge that I have made some wrong decisions and I reverse course. But at a point in time when I make a decision, you know, once I take responsibility for the decisions I make and truly I don't regret them, but I'm also the first person to say this is a wrong decision or that's a right reverse, reverse, reverse. That's how I run my companies. Take bold decisions. If they're wrong, just be the first one to say error, mistake, reverse, reverse, reverse. In this case, it was not a mistake to do what I did. It did open up a can of worms. Obviously, the can of worms, as it turns out, was much greater than what was in those emails. And, you know, there are a number of commissions of inquiry into state corruption um, in South Africa right now. I've had to testify at, at one of the commissions. But no, I think it was the right decision for the country. I think it had an impact on the fact that by December of that year, Zuma was not re-elected as president of ANC and hence president of the country. Cyril Ramaphosa came in. I think that the release of those emails, the, the knowledge, I mean, look, people didn't know that it was me. That only came, I think state security suspected. No one knew who did it. Um, so I only, that only came to light and it was never supposed to come to light, to be perfectly honest. I had legal representation. I It came to light not via me. It came to light via the whistleblower and his lawyer who decided to talk about it. Or at least the lawyer, whom I paid, by the way, for, for confidentiality, which he didn't, he didn't comply with. So my role was never supposed to, to be in the public domain. But I do believe that, look, state security wouldn't have followed me around if they didn't suspect that I played a role. Uh, but no. No regrets whatsoever, yeah. ever, in any decisions I have ever made. This is already in the way you've responded to this question, taking us in the direction of the last phase of our conversation today that I wanted to open up for you to reflect and share on, which is your your leadership journey, your philosophy and principles of leadership and your practice of leadership. And one thing you've just talked about here is this notion of standing by your decisions being clear about the choices you take on. And then as more information gets revealed in the future, going back and reversing course on those that you feel you need to, but this is not one of them. This is one that you feel at peace with, even though the, there were costs there. Very powerful. So let's do that. If you don't mind, let's um, open the aperture again to certainly your reform you know, activities, but also your business building activities. And um, I've been struck in some of our more informal conversations, uh, Magda, about yeah, some of these very, I think, learnable lessons that all of us can take from the way you handle some of these very defining moments that a leader has to face. I mean, there was a conversation I still very concretely remember that I was having with you the other day when you were here in New York. And you, you talked about how, like, you're very comfortable at the idea of speech making just on the fly, just being invited to come up, just make a speech to an audience and you don't need any preparation. Where do you get that kind of comfort and mastery over the words and ideas that you express? You know, so, so the couple of answers, in fact, I was at Columbia Business School doing a lecture there, which lasted for me talking freely for about over an hour and a half. And now there were no notes and now there was no prep whatsoever. Look, I mean, I'm a firm believer in this concept of 10,000 hours. If you put in 10,000 hours, you'll become an expert in your field. I started doing public presentations, be it in the context of business development, when I was 25 or 26 years old, working in first, you know, in the startup companies, uh, building up that investment consulting division, then working for the startup coronation. Um, so I was exposed to this concept of public speaking very early on. But I also very early on, you know, realized, so, so the practice has been immense. I've got many, many, many hours of speaking in public on variety of different topics and being questioned 
because when you present particularly to, to boards of trustees of very large pools of money, those tend to be smart people who ask smart questions and you have to have the answers to those questions. You know, I'm also an avid reader. Um, you know, I'm incredibly interested in the intersection of economics and politics. That's kind of the passion. Endless appetite for, for politics and economics because I just find it absolutely fascinating how the two coexist together and how that those two forces shape the world. And you have seen all of this in the pandemic, you know, so, so that is, is incredibly powerful understanding to have, particularly when you're speaking publicly, because it gives you the ability to answer almost any questions thrown at you. And then, you know, the, the bit where you don't have to prep, I guess, when you start speaking from the heart and when you speak and, and look, you're not going to do this at the age of 25, you know, you, you need some years of experience behind your belt. But once you kind of have views and opinions which are your own, not shaped by, I mean, they're shaped by events, but you arrive at a point in life where you have your own opinions and your own beliefs and your own truth, then it's very easy to talk about it. You're not making it up. You haven't prepped it. You ha it's not plagiarized. It's not copied. It's innovation, not imitation. And then it really becomes very, very easy to talk about because you talk about yourself, you talk about what's in your head. And, you know, I'm such a believer in, in the ability to speak in public that when my kids and I, two sons, you know, when they were about 10 years old, I sent them both to an acting school, not for them to become actors, but for them to acquire the confidence to speak publicly. And when they went into high school, they became part of, you know, public speaking debating societies, they competed um, in South Africa, they were parts of South African teams, they competed internationally. And that's actually what got the two of them, one into Colombia, the other one into University of Pennsylvania. That was at edge. Everyone has good marks. You needed an edge. Public speaking was the edge. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, you're reminding me of the story, which is like one of my favorite stories. And uh, perhaps you've heard of it. I don't know. But in 1931, uh, Gandhi went to South Africa, uh, to, um, to England to uh, participate in like a roundtable conference that the British government was holding with like Indian leaders to talk about the future of India. This is about 16 years before India actually got its independence. And um, so after his speech, one of the journalists there came over to his private secretary and he said, how did Mr. Gandhi do it? Because he spoke for like so long and he spoke so eloquently, so persuasively, so inspiringly, and he didn't use any piece of paper. There were no notes or anything. And um, his private secretary looks at the gentleman and he says look he says you know in your case and in my case we think one thing we feel another we say a third and we do a fourth and that's why we need paper he said in the case of gandhi it's all the same thing what he thinks what he feels what he says what he does is always the same thing so he doesn't need any paper you were talking about that it's your truth it's something you worked out you resolved it your thoughts and your speech become the same. It's, it's such a beautiful testament to the power of living authentically. But the fact that it also requires some inner work to get yourself in that state, right? And that's what I think you're saying, that in your 20s, make sure you're doing that work to get yourself ready. Absolutely. I mean, your 20s are absolutely key critical. And, you know, I see so many people focusing on the wrong thing. So, so you know, I the most powerful essay that I ever wrote, but actually that has had the most meaning in my life, and probably the only thing I remember from university, was, you know, I did this kind of one of those courses on management of human resources. And the main topic, an overarching midterm was, it does money motivate? We had to write an essay on does money motivate? And this is pre-internet days, by the way, guys, no Googling of anything. 
sitting in dusty libraries and reading books. And, you know, I did a lot of research because this essay was basically um, dictated whether you passed or failed. And anyway, I ended up um, winning the class prize, but that's not the point. The point was that the ultimate conclusion was even at that stage of my life, which is I was whatever, 17, was um, that money is validation of nothing. Money is an enabler. It certainly enables you to do things. But if you judge yourself solely by money at the end of your life, at the end of your career, that's a very sad validation of your existence. And some of the saddest people I know are very wealthy investment bankers who the only validation has been having earned a lot of money. And all they can talk about is the money they've earned because there's nothing else that they've done in their lives. Squat, which one makes them for very boring companions, Two alienates everybody around them. Three means they don't have any true friendships. And it's a, truly a sad existence. I mean, how many handbags can you have? Pairs of shoes can you have? How many sports cars can you aspire to? For God's sake, these things are undrivable. So, so that is no validation. And so many people, you know, in their 20s, instead of focusing on growth, on acquiring of skills, on things that actually set them up for life, are focused on what is my body earning? I need to earn the same. I remember employing saying, just because it's a really funny story, quick one. I employed a young actuary, incredibly bright, you know, good looking, bright. He had his future ahead of him. Arrived at Signia. Within a week, he's in my office, walks in. He says to me, Magda, what are you going to do to ensure that I make 100 million rand, which is a hell of a lot of money, you know, $10 million. How, do you, how will you ensure or enable me to make $10 million because my peers are at about that level and I feel that I'm being left behind. You know, and I looked at him and I said, you know, Trevor, I've got one suggestion for you, rob a bank. And that was that. He didn't last that same year after that. Yeah. So money, no validation. Search, quest yeah. for money. Oh, God. Truly, truly sad existence. Yeah, wow. What a great story. What a great story. I hope that's in your book. That, uh, <laughs> you know, that among others. I, I need to think. There's, um, the, I wrote the book in like two months, not even, yeah. uh, on the planes as I was flying around. So it's now with publishers. I don't know. They're editing it. I need Must to remember be. that and check. Yeah. yeah. I mean, gosh, you are a, you're just a library of just so many amazing stories, amazing stories. I want to maybe end on a personal note in two in two ways. One is uh, first, just talk about your partnership with your husband. Uh, he happens to be your business partner at uh, yeah, Signia as well. And then also, obviously, a life partner. And uh, you made some bold decisions with the turns and twists that you've taken over the course of your career. How have those conversations been between, between you and Simon, uh, your, your husband, as to these ways in which you're going to extend your just kind of role in society into something that could have an impact on the whole family and all of that? I mean, you know, I'm just be curious if you're able to lend some insight into like hard, tough calls that couples at times have to make, individuals in relationships have to make, and perhaps a lesson that we can take from the manner in which you and he have navigated those. We've been married, or I've been married for 25 years in a very happy marriage. And my husband is very much of a stabilizing influence on me. So, um, you know, often when I get asked, what does it take for a woman to be successful in business? I always say it... Um, it's the decision that you take in terms of the type of person you're going to marry. 
So you've got to marry someone who is going to be supportive of you through and through, who is going to help, who is not going to compete with you, who takes pride in your in in their own achievements and um, in the in his own achievements, who has the self confidence to be married to to a successful or a powerful woman, and is not threatened by that. So it takes a really strong person. Doesn't mean it takes an aggressive person. It actually just takes someone who is centered, uh, who is self confident, who knows who they are. And you know, in, in terms of our marriage, I think you know very early on we recognized because we also then ended up working together. So we spent an enormous amount of time together that um, we had our own interests and we gave each other space to pursue those interests. So my husband's weird interest is bird watching <laughs> and collecting birds. He's currently in Alaska, freezing to death. The, the people who are avid bird watchers collect life lists of, of birds they have seen. And I think he's like ranked 250 something in the world. And, you know, that takes time. And I've always given him and that time and space. In terms of the decisions you know, I make, I mean, I have to be honest, um, I never consult him. I just make the decision because I said to you before, I make my own decisions. But to be completely kind of fair to him, he's always been supportive of every decision I have made. He's never stood in the way of any decision, despite the fact that obviously some of those decisions have had impact on both of us. But he's been fully supportive of any decision that I have made. He's had to live with the consequences of some of those decisions, uh, but I don't think he would have it any other way. You know, as I always say to him, look, you could have married a woman who would have, and, and I make no judgment in terms of women who choose to stay at home and bring up children. I think it's a key function and, and very important. It's what's right for people. There are different things that are right for different women. Um, but I said to you, you could have married a woman who wanted to stay at home, who wanted to bring up children, who would ensure that you lived a really comfy life. Your shirts were ironed instead of you sitting there with an ironing board, ironing your own shirts. You could have married someone who would cook instead of you having to cook for me. And you would have a very stable, linear life. Or you chose to marry someone like me, where it's drama. We just go from one drama to another. <laughs> Clearly, he stayed for 25 years, so he must enjoy the drama. <laughs> It's inspiring and insightful in so many ways. This is uh, so special for you to give us a little bit of a window into the personal dynamics there as well. And folks, um, you know, Magda's husband, Simon, is an institution unto himself. Such an incredible force of nature. And uh, we hope to have him in a future in the sections uh, as well. Really a wonderful, wonderful spirit. Magda, you, 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 I asked you about your role models at some point. And so let's end with this last question. You mentioned how for you, really, in some ways, it has been more of an inner kind of call, you know, that you have responded to, that it has come more from within. And I, I really value that, respect that. In fact, uh, as I think I've shared with you, I've, you know, just gotten my own book, Manuscript Done, and it's in the hand of the publishers as well. So we are timing it right. Although you worked on it for two months, I, I've been laboring over it for two years. But, um, but I have a chapter in my book, which is called Ways of Knowing. And it's about where do we draw our insights and inspiration and learning about human nature, the universe, life, and what it's meant for from. Is it from faith? Is it from science? Is it from experience? Uh, and I arrive at the conclusion that ultimately, whichever of these sources you use, you have to filter it. You have to be approaching it with a healthy amount of skepticism and questioning from your side, because otherwise you 
get into blind faith, blind faith into science, blind faith into somebody and, you know, whatever it might be. And so ultimately it does come down to needing to listen to your own inner voice. And you are, you know, you, you're a beautiful example of somebody who has shone in life, both in terms of success in business, success in your personal relationship, and then ultimately also into social reform, all the way from those formerly incarcerated that you're hiring and the venture capital work that you're doing and the push that you're making for also anti-corruption drives. So let me ask you this. At least in my research, I found that it's very important that when we are wanting to listen to that inner voice, we create the space for it. We invest something for our own selves beyond the outer work that we're doing to be able to keep it strong, keep it alive, keep it really clear. What practice do you have in your life that um, allows you to invest in yourself and nurture and strengthen that voice within um, you know, so, so I think it's important to, as you said, you know, kind of make time in your daily life to kind of maybe self-reflect, maybe to just go into your headspace and not, you know, kind of be there physically. And what I'm going to, to say next might sound strange, but many people meditate. That's That's the more common way of doing it. I do my own form of meditation, which I know a lot of you will laugh, but it is what it is. Basically, I you know get up early in the morning, every morning, and um, I run. I run for two hours. And if I can run in the street, I explore cities and have explored cities by virtue of just running everywhere. If not, then I run on a treadmill. I run every single day for two hours. But that gives me the... Well, it, it gives me a few things, you know, if I'm running in the streets observing the city, um, it gives me the time to think. If I'm running on a treadmill, I might watch documentaries, which just kind of enrich my self-awareness, learning, and they might be anything on history, you know, documentaries on politics, documentaries on current affairs. There is a great um, documentary ser series, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing made by Frontline, uh, which is available free. on, uh, And th they produce monumental documentaries on current affairs on a range of topics so that's when I kind of disengage from the normal world and that's my space yes it does involve my feet moving which is good that you can kind of combine exercise with inner space uh, but if you actually think that you know running releases the most endorphins of any exercise that's really what energizes me for the day but also gives me the headspace to to be somewhere else and not on the planet. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start to wrap up. But folks, I want to share a personal story with you about Magda. I met you the other day and you were highlighting how you had an early morning meeting. And because of that, it's not that you skipped your two hours of meditative running. You just woke up earlier. I think if I recall, you said that you woke up at 4.30 that day to make sure you'd accomplish this in time for that breakfast meeting, I'm assuming, that you had. Yeah. That is a kind of discipline we're talking about here, the quiet discipline behind someone who's, um, yeah, just so incredibly grounded and so incredibly successful. Inner mastery and outer impact, bringing those two worlds together, Magda, you're you're truly giving us thoughtful insights, vision, and courage. I let the last word here be yours. If there's one wish you have for, for all of us who are your audience, who are listening to you, getting inspiration from you, uh, what is that one ask or push or you know, wish that you have as to what we take from your example in your life and bring it to our own? So I think it talks to you know, a lot of experiences that I have had and a lot of things that I have seen. But the one wish I would have for literally everyone is that you know the, this planet and we are facing and, and human race for that matter a multitude of massive issues your climate change 
inequality and poverty, unemployment, unemployment caused by technology. These are massive, massive problems. And the only way that we can ensure our survival and the survival of our children and grandchildren is to stop focusing on different religions, different skin colors, different genders, different political views, and to come together, literally together, and start debating the issues that matter and not the issues that don't. And to take it back to my communist roots, everyone was equal. Everyone is equal. People are born with different skills and different talents. That's fine, function of life. But in my life, everyone is equal. Everyone's opinion matters. There is no such thing as we don't want immigrants. That shouldn't even feature. We need to talk about the fact that we are collectively living on this planet together, coexisting. We should do so peacefully and we should work together on solving the problems that are facing us together. And until we start that, and you know, that needs to start, I'm, I'm not relying on politicians, by the way, that kind of togetherness must start at a point, and again, you know, you can't really talk about yourself as an adult at the age of, you know, whatever, under the age of 15. But that kind of togetherness must start happening at university levels. This is where, you, you know, univers- it, it's, it's also, it's incumbent on university students to start coming together across the world and uniting forces and uniting forces against existing structures, against existing dialogues, seeing each other as equal, recognizing the broader problems and, take, and helping those less fortunate because there are a lot of people who are, do not have the good fortune of being able to go to university. So how do you solve for that problem? being in the privileged position that you are in. If there's one wish, it would be that everyone comes together, stops focusing on completely irrelevant things, completely irrelevant ones, and start focusing on ensuring that we survive. And literally, if you know climate change is not, never mind stopped, but reversed, we won't. That's what matters. That, that really is the kind of one big wish which is probably unrealistic, but we can, we, we can dream. Why not? Why not? Why not dream big? Well, you've left us with a beautiful dream. You've left us with a, a also a, just a, yeah, an inspired call to action to pour our energies in the right place, uh, in the place where we get all unified, you know, behind a beautiful and common cause rather than really keep fighting over our differences. Um, I, I love that. I, I love that. So thank you so much, Mag. I always walk out and from my conversations with you, just incredibly uplifted, incredibly uplifted, both by just like the aspirations you have for the world, but just like who you are. You're a living, living scripture, a living truth. And I, I love that. So thank you for all you're doing, Magda. Most importantly, just in your own life uh, and also for you know investing the heart and the time to speak to audiences like ours, to bring this message out and bring your own life experiences out. We, I'm sure I say we, because I know it's just not me, but many in the audience are looking forward now to your book and getting more into your story, even through that. So take care. Thank you. I look forward to staying in touch and very, very grateful to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks. Bye everyone. (laughs) Bye-bye.